So we're going to turn to Colossians and chapter 1. Colossians and chapter 1. This morning I was talking about Tom. Well, I want to tell you about Harry. Is he there? No? Uh, can I go back? Oh, there he is. That is Harry. Whoops, sorry. Yeah, there we are. That's Harry. Harry. Who's Harry? Well, he's a university student. Face is ridicule because he is a Christian. Does he enjoy that? No, of course he doesn't. What about Olivia? She works in a supermarket. Sometimes she too is teased because she's a Christian. Does she enjoy that? No, of course she doesn't. Now listen to first century Apostle Paul. I rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. What an odd thing to say. He's writing from a prison in Rome. He's been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, so he is suffering. He's writing to Christians in Colossae, which is in present-day Turkey. I rejoice in my sufferings. <clears throat> Look at Colossians 1, verses 24-25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So in these two verses, we have suffering, verse 24, and we have serving in verse 25. So he talks about, I rejoice in my sufferings. Whatever prompted Paul to write such bizarre words. I rejoice in my suffering. But erroneous teachers were swarming into Colossae, Colossae like bees. And they were saying, don't listen to Paul. We have got something more to offer you. Oh, he preaches Christ. That's good. That's fine. But we can offer you something extra. We can give you a new and deeper experience of Christ than this man Paul. How does Paul react to that? He says, look at my suffering. My sufferings are the evidence that I'm an authentic apostle sent by God. I rejoice in my sufferings. Because they are evidence that God has sent me with his message to you people here in, there in Colossae. Now to understand I rejoice in my sufferings, we need to recall Paul's dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road. 
you remember, he'd been killing Christians. And he was chasing Christians to Damascus. That was what he was planning to do. And there he is, riding along on his horse with murder in his heart. He's got the taste of blood and he wants more. And then there's the shining light and the voice from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're persecuting me when you kill these Christians. And then Christ sends an aged apostle named Ananias, and he is told to tell this to Paul. I have chosen you to spread my message, but this choice means that you must suffer for my name. So it's a privilege to Paul to suffer for Christ. I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice because God works out his purposes through my hardship. And suffering is the hallmark of the Christian life. You want an easy life? Well, don't become a Christian. Want things nice and rosy and smooth and nothing going wrong? Well, don't become a Christian. If you're a Christian, then you will be misunderstood. Sometimes you'll be laughed at. Sometimes you'll be ridiculed. The mark of a Christian is to suffer, as it was the mark of Paul being a Christian and of Paul being a preacher of the gospel. So he says, I rejoice in my suffering." But the next bit of the verse is even more puzzling. Look at the verse, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Well, we think that's odd. What a strange thing to say. But look, it's even more puzzling, the next bit. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. Now there's no suggestion in these words that uh, Christ does not offer enough to pay the price of our sins. We mustn't say, oh, but, but then Christ's suffering for us was inadequate. He hasn't paid the payment for our sins. It can't mean that, can it? Listen, listen, can you hear Jesus on the cross it is finished. What's finished? He doesn't mean, well, I'm glad that's over and done with. No, he means I have accomplished what I came from heaven to do. The saving of a vast number of sinners. Finished. It's a cry of triumph. Or you turn to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews shouts loud and clear, when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One single sacrifice dealt with our sins. He has died once for all. There is nothing you can add, nothing you need add to the death of Jesus Christ. You come to God through Christ, through Christ alone, and God will receive you. 
and God will forgive you. Okay, Paul, what do you mean then? In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul, whatever can you mean by this very strange statement you're making in this letter to the Colossians? He means, as I understand it, it's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I understand this to mean that Christ suffers. When we suffer, it is Christ who is suffering with us. This is why Christ said to Paul on that Damascus road, Why are you persecuting me? These Christians are suffering, and it is me who is suffering. You are persecuting me. Killer Christians, as if you're killing me. Mock and laugh at a Christian, and as if you're mocking and laughing at me, is what Jesus is saying. Paul says, in that sense, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Christ is suffering through his people. Suffering as his people suffer. Now the book of Hebrews again can help us here. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. See some of these Hebrews we're on the verge of going back to their old Judaism. And the apostle says, you must look at Christ. Keep focused on Christ. And then he goes on. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ feels for you and suffers with you and suffers in a sense through you when you are suffering. With a great high priest touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He has an unequaled capacity for sympathy. So when you're suffering as a Christian, people are laughing at you. Ah, all this Bible nonsense. You can't believe that in an age of science and technology and of evolution. You can't believe all this stuff about the Bible. You can't believe all that. And you mean to say there's only one way to God through your Jesus Christ? That's intolerant. We can't possibly believe that. And people are laughing at you. And it's hard to be a Christian, isn't it? It can be tough to be a Christian among non-Christians. But when you're suffering, Christ is there feeling for you. Sending you his strength. Sending his sympathy from the throne. You suffer, it is as if Christ is suffering himself. And he sees the heartache. He sees the pain. He sees the temptations. He sees the trials. He sees the difficulties and the problems that you are facing because you're a Christian. He sees, he knows, he feels. The great high priest touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So we have a high priest. He feels for us. His sympathy comes to us. Well, what you should do, what should you then do then? Well, again, the writer to the Hebrews says, let us then 
Let us then, because we have a great high priest in heaven, exalted, glorious in heaven, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You may come confidently to God. God will receive you. God will welcome you. God is there to help you. God is there to give you sympathy and strength. Come with confidence. He will never, never turn you away. Come near to the throne of grace. It's a throne because there's a king on it, the king of kings, lord of lords. But it's a throne of grace, mercy, pity, compassion. And he says, come that we may receive mercy and find grace. God's compassion, God's help, God's forgiveness, God's strength, God's comfort. Find grace to help in time of need. I love that bit. In time of need. It's when I need God's strength, when I need God's help, that he will be there. Just at that right moment, he will be there. God doesn't say to you, look in the cupboard, and there's grace, a box of grace, and you can take it whenever you need it. No, he says, I will give you grace when you need it. Not in advance, but when you need it. And how many Christians, we've all proved that, haven't we? We've had to go through an operation, maybe. We've had to go through a difficult time. We've gone through a time of grief and bereavement. And we've wondered, how can I cope? But God has given his grace to go through the operation. God has given his grace to face the trial. God has given us his grace to cope with bereavement and grief and pain. God gives us his grace when we need it. And in that sense, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He fills for us. He suffers with us. And he suffers through us as we go on in the Christian life. So we have a wonderful, glorious Saviour. So suffering will sometimes mean ridicule. It may mean people laughing, people teasing, people misunderstanding, as in my illustrations of, uh, of Harry and Olivia in the university, in the supermarket, wherever you are. But for others, suffering has meant persecution. It has meant imprisonment, as it did for Paul. It has meant being put to death, as it did eventually for Paul. We believe that he was put to death by one of the Roman emperors. I read just recently of a Pakistani, age 14. See if I can pronounce his name. Nayuman S-M-A-S-I-H. And uh, he was brutally attacked by some fanatical Muslims on their way to Friday prayers. They're going to pray. And yet here they are, brutally attacking this young man of 14 who was a Christian. They said to him, are you a Christian? Are you a Muslim? Are you one of us? No, I'm a Christian. And they beat him up. And then they threw a uh, uh, over him and set him alight. 
50% birds. Four days later, he died. What? You're worried that somebody's making fun of you and laughing at you? What? Think of this man and many others like him being beaten up, burned because he was a Christian. He certainly understood Christ's afflictions. He certainly understood pain. So there's suffering. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. It's a privilege to suffer for Christ. And I'm filling up what he's lacking in Christ's afflictions. He suffers with me and through me and gives me strength and he gives me his comfort. But look, there is serving. There is not only suffering, but there is serving. And we read in verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. We suffer because we serve. And our duty, and it ought to be our delight, is to serve the Lord. Whatever's happening in my life, however much people may oppose me, misunderstand me and laugh at me, what am I to do? Not give up, no. But to go on serving the Lord as he gives me strength, as he gives me the ability and the gifts, so I will go on serving the Lord. Giving up isn't an option. No, whatever happens, I will go on serving the Lord. That was the attitude of Paul. It ought to be our attitude too. Now, look, he uses this word minister in verse 25, of which I became a minister. The word there means to be a servant. It's not talking about somebody with a clerical collar. Uh, no, no, you don't read that in the New Testament. The word minister here means to be a servant. Paul says, I'm a servant or a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and I will serve him. Where he sends me, I will go. What he says, I will do. A servant. But of course, all Christians are servants. Not just spiritual leaders, but all Christians. Paul says in Romans 6 that you are either serving yourself, sin, unrighteousness, or you're serving the Lord, Jesus Christ, righteousness, holiness. You're serving one or the other. You can't be neutral. You can't sit on the fence. You're a servant of someone, of the devil or of God. A servant. We belong to the servant king. And this being a servant, a minister, speaks of humility, doesn't it? The disciples one day were arguing. Who will be the greatest? Who will have the greatest place in heaven? Who will be nearest the throne? And Jesus says, listen, listen. What are you doing arguing about who is the greatest Listen, listen. He said, Jesus said, and whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus had the servant attitude. He says you must have that attitude too. Or remember what we read in Philippians 2. The apostle is teaching humility. And this is what he says. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was absolutely God, and yet he became absolutely man. He was still God in a human body, but he took the attitude of a servant, he made himself nothing, he, of no reputation. He didn't stand up for his rights. He didn't say to God, well, why should I go and die for these sinners who have rebelled against us? Why should I go and suffer pain and shame and be stark naked on a cross? Why should I do that? No, no, he said, I will go willingly. I will die on a cross. I will be ill-treated. I will be laughed at. I will be mocked. I will be nailed to a cross. I'll do this willingly as a servant, that I might save your people, save all who will repent of their sins. He humbled himself, became an obedient to the death of a cross. Is that your attitude? Oh, how easy we stand up for our rights. How easy we think about our reputation. Somebody says something offensive to us, well, why should I put up with that? I'm not going to stand for that. That wasn't the attitude of Jesus, was it? Paul says, let this mind be in you. The mind of Christ. The mind of the servant king. This is what it means to be a minister, to be a servant, to serve the Lord. We have to have the attitude of humility. Think about the upper room just before Jesus' death. Think about those disciples with their smelly, dirty feet celebrating the Passover and Jesus in that time established the Lord's Supper. They're in the upper room. There's the bowl of water. There's the towel. And their feet are smelly. But someone has forgotten to hire a servant. Look around the crowd. What can you say? Look around the twelve. What can you say? Well, John's thinking maybe, well, I can't wash the feet. I'm the one who leans on Jesus' chest. I'm very special and precious to Jesus. I'm the one he loves. Maybe Peter's thinking, no, no, I can't do it. He said to me, you are Peter, and upon you I'll build my church. I'm very special. I'm a foundation apostle. I can't do it. Maybe Andrew's thinking, well, I can't do it. I'm rather shy and self-effacing. I, I, I would be 
feeling embarrassed to do it. And so we could go right round the group of the disciples. No one's going to do it. So Jesus gets up, puts the towel around his waist, kneels down. He's God in human flesh, kneeling down in the, at the feet of his disciples, proud disciples. And he washes their dirty feet, smelly, dirty, dusty feet. The Son of God in human flesh is washing their feet. He says, you do this. I don't think he meant that we should literally wash one another's feet. Some religious groups have done that. I think he means this is the attitude you have to one another. Love one another. Be humble. Be servants of one another. Have the attitude of the servant king. The attitude that I have shown to you. Minister, says Paul. I'm a minister. I'm a servant. I have the mind of Christ, the mind of humility. Do you have that attitude? How can you be a Christian if you don't have the attitude and the mind of Christ? That attitude of humility, that attitude of caring for one another, of serving one another. Look again at our text. He talks about himself as a servant of the gospel. A servant of the gospel. He says there, the gospel, verse 23, which was proclaimed, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The gospel is the good news that God reconciles sinners to himself through the death of his son. That's the context. He's been talking about reconciliation. That's the good news. And he says, I am a servant of the gospel. The gospel dominates Paul's life. It's at the centre of his life. The gospel bringing the good news to lost sinners. That is at the very heart of the apostle. And it involved him in suffering. It's the gospel at the very heart of your thinking. And the very heart of your living, you live to bring the gospel to men, to women, to boys, to girls, to sinners, to unbelievers. You're obsessed with the gospel. Paul was. I'm a servant of the gospel. Now, this prompts some questions, I think. Is the gospel more important than our families, our homes, our possessions? Our careers, our hobbies, our recreations. All these things have their place and they're important, yes. But are they more important than the gospel? Serving Jesus Christ, serving his people. How much time and money do we give to gospel work? Think about it. Spent a lot of money, maybe, on a recreation, on a hobby. But how much do you give to the work of God, to the local church here? To the work of missionary? Those who are taking the gospel to other lands. Missionary societies are crying out for funds. And we may be wasting it on things, maybe legitimate. But could we not give more 
to the work of the gospel in this church, in other lands, in mission. People are dying, spiritually dying. They're going to hell. Do you believe that? Oh, of course you believe it. It's part of the creed, isn't it? It's part of the doctrinal statement, as I remember, of Potham Baptist Church. Of course, we're evangelicals. We're Grace Baptists, we're evangelicals, we're in the FIC. Of course we believe in hell. Of course we believe that hell is everlasting. But do you, do you, do you? If you do, then you'll give your time and your energies and your money to the work of the gospel, to bring in the gospel to lost dying sinners. He says, I'm a servant of the gospel, a minister, a servant of the gospel. He says, I'm a servant of the church. There in verse 24, 25, he talks about his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister. I'm a servant of the church. I'm serving for you, Colossians. I'm serving on your behalf. I've suffered to bring the gospel to you. I'm a servant of the church, the body of Christ. Twice in Colossians 1, Paul uses the metaphor of a body. In verse 18, verse 24, he says that Christ is the head and his people, Christians, the church, are like a body. We derive our life from the head. We derive our, derive our spiritual strength from Christ the head. And Paul says, I'm serving the church. My whole life is taken up with the gospel. It's taken up with serving God's people, serving the church, giving myself my energy and my time to build up the people of God, to bring others into the church by the preaching of the gospel, of the good news. We may put this alongside 1 Corinthians 12. We also have there, in an extended form, this metaphor of the body. Paul says we're a body, and every part of the body is needed. Now, if my arm was cut off, I'd be disabled. I could get on without my arm. I hope I never get to that state. But, 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 but for a really healthy body, I need my arm. I need to be there. And if one member is uh, not functioning properly, spiritual problems, spiritual difficulties, and help put in their weight, they think they can do their own thing, but, but the body isn't functioning properly. Paul says, I work for you. We must work for one another. We must support one another. He says, when one member suffers, we all suffer. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. Every member, every part of the body is essential. It's necessary in the, working, in the work of the local church. Servants of the church. Serving one another. Working in harmony together. To bring the gospel to lost sinners. To build up the church so that it will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God has given you gifts and ministries. Are you using them? Look at your life. Has God given you some ability, some gift? Are you using it for the benefit of 
the rest of the church. We're not given gifts that we might seek applause for ourselves, that we might enhance ourselves. We're given gifts to serve, serve one another. Serve the gospel, serve the church, serve one another. Now, if you're not sure what gifts you may have and what you can do in the work of the church, well, go to mature Christians and say, well, look, I want to serve the Lord. I want to do more for him. Can you give me some advice, some guidance? What gifts do you think that God has given to me? What gifts do you think I could develop? What can I do in the church? What can I do to help the local church? Ask those kinds of questions. Ask, pray about it. Talk, talk to mature Christians. Well, what can I do? Every member is necessary. Every member is important, especially in a small church like this. You all need to be pulling together in unity, seeking God's presence among you, seeking to develop your gifts. And it may be you'll find you've got gifts you didn't know you had. Someone may say to you, well, can you do this job? And you say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly do that. But, but maybe you can. And if you've been asked to do it, why not consider doing it? Someone must have thought that you had the ability to do it or the potential. Say, okay, well, oh, yes, okay. I'll see what I can do. God helping me with the support of the church. I'll see how I can use that gift, that ministry, how I can serve the gospel and how I can serve the church. Look at verse 25. There's another word here, another noun that speaks of service. There's minister, which means servant. And then there's this word, uh, stewardship, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Stewardship. Well, imagine some rich man with his big house, and he's got a steward or a servant who looks after his possessions, looks after his property, makes sure that there's food for the cook to cook, makes sure there's provisions in the larder. He is serving and he's responsible to his master. Paul says, I'm like a steward. I'm bringing the treasures of the gospel to people. And I'm sharing the things that God has given to me. And I'm a steward in the house of God, the church of God. But the steward is responsible to his master. And we are responsible to the divine master for how we serve him, how we use the gifts that he has given to us. How will you face the divine master if you've been a lazy, shoddy Christian, you've not used the gifts he's given to you, you've not served him as wholeheartedly as you could? Will you look him in the face? Be able to say, well, I did the best I could by your grace? And we have to aim your head in shame. Well, I could have been a better Christian. Well, we'll all say that, I think. But will he say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Live as a Christian so that you'll not be ashamed to stand before the divine master. So there's stewardship. But, but uh, servants and stewards are, in the words of verse 25, 
to make the word of God fully known. What does that mean, to make it fully known? Well, it means we want to see unbelievers trusting Christ. And he talks about uh, bringing, uh, that we may present everyone mature in Christ, verse 28. We want to see the babes in Christ growing into adult Christians. And we want to see the mature Christians continuing as mature Christians and growing and developing and faithfully serving the Lord. We want to make known the word of God fully known. Is that your desire? Oh, I want to serve the Lord. I want to be a useful member of my church. I want to be working for the Lord. I want to be spreading the gospel. I want to be making the word of God fully known. Is that your attitude? Can you say yes, 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 wholeheartedly to the questions I put to you? And uh, we know that as we work for the Lord, he will accomplish his, his purposes. Isaiah 55 uh, talks about um, uh, God will use his word and he will accomplish what he has sent that word for, to bring sinners to himself, to build up his people. And we read in the Psalms, it's Psalm 126, that when we sow in tears, we will reap in joy. Oh, there's many tears. Why do so few seem to pay any attention to the gospel? Put our leaflets around the door, we talk to people on the streets, and so few seem to be interested. But some, some will come to the Saviour. Just a little church. Think, oh, what can we do? There's a lot of tears. Tears for believers who've backslidden, who were baptised, sat with us once at the Lord's table. Tears that they're no longer walking with the Lord. Tears that some who should be stronger are seem to be so weak. Some who should be using their gifts and working with us seem to be so uh, uh, lacking in zeal, even lazy. Oh, yes, many tears. But the tears replaced by joy. Bring, you, you go bearing the precious seed, sowing the precious seed, you can come with rejoicing with the sheaves. God will bless our efforts. Hold on to those great promises. So, let me give you some illustrations of suffering and serving. Let me give you some illustrations. It's got all the different bits there. So, they were meant to come up one by one, but they seem to be coming all up at once. Never mind. Charles Thomas Studd, C.T. Studd, played in the first cricket match for the Ashes back in the 19th century. Here's a man who was suffering and serving. And this is what he said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great 
for me to make for him. And that attitude took him, first of all, to China, gave up his cricket, a graduate of Cambridge University, he went to China. And then he came home and later went to India. And then as an old man, he heard that missionaries were wanted in Africa and they get eaten by big animals. Is that the right word? And he said, I'll go to Africa then. And that's where he died. That's where he was buried. And he was the founder of the worldwide evangelization crusade. What about Jim Elliot? He wrote in his journal, 28th of October, 1948. He'd been thinking about those words. You, to, to, you, to save your life, you have to lose it, and so on. And this is what Jim Elliot wrote. An American, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He went to the Indians, Indians in the Ecuador, and he was speared to death, 1956. He was only age 28. There's a man who suffered and served. Or what about, we can't leave the ladies out, can we? Oh, we could give a whole list Godly women who've suffered and served. But let me just give you one. Frances Ridley Havergal. And she wrote, Thy life was given for me. Thy blood, O Lord, was shed. That I might ransomed be and quickened from the dead. Thy life was given for me. What have I given for thee? Thy life was given for me, what have I given for thee? That's the attitude of the apostle. That's the Christian suffering and serving. Let's pray, then we're going to sing that hymn. So Lord our God, we thank you then for the great apostle Paul, that he was so willing to suffer and to serve, that he had that attitude of the servant king, that nothing was too great for him to give to you who had given everything for him. And Lord, you've given everything for us. You've poured out your blood on the cross to redeem us. Oh Lord, that we might pour out our love in suffering and serving for you. Lord, there may be some here this evening who are finding it very difficult to be Christians. It seems so hard, so tough. Maybe people laughing and making fun. And they're wondering whether to go on or to go back. Oh God, strengthen them and encourage them. May they keep on going and going and going. In your mighty power, oh God. May they be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Help us and strengthen us, oh God. Oh Lord, bless your people here. So few it seems to work for you here in Potton. But, oh God, give them strength. Give them perseverance. Oh God, pour out your spirit upon them. And, Lord, we pray that others too may move into the town and become part of the work of the gospel here in this place. Lord, prosper your work. We pray here in Potton through the Potton Baptist Church. So hear us, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen.